So my name is Ros Ballister. I'm Professor of 18th Century Studies um, in English Literature at, at Oxford. I started becoming interested in the Oriental tale in the 18th century because I'd been reading a very famous book by Edward Said, um, published in the late 1970s called Orientalism, which has been very influential in historical and literary studies and cultural studies. And it makes the argument that the Orient is constructed as other historically through time, um, as a kind of alien and dangerous force by Western writers for resistance um, and critique, and to imagine their own superiority to the East. But when you look at early modern accounts, sort of 17th, 18th century representations of the East, there's a much more positive version of the East that you encounter as a place of kind of wisdom, of ancientness, an alternative to Greek and Roman uh, Western origins. Um, Chinese Confucianism is celebrated as a sort of ancient and, with, and wise religion. Um, and Islam itself is often paralleled, in fact, to Christianity and Muhammad to, um, to, to Christ. So I became interested in sort of thinking about why this is and tracing that enthusiasm for the East and also perhaps thinking about the East less as something that's constructed as opposite to the West, as something that's constructed as analogous to the West, something that you could say um, you could compare um, to Western culture or see as being at a very often in the 18th century it's imagined as kind of a, a sort of earlier uh, or return to an ancient and classical world that you can encounter by traveling east. So this coincides with travelers' accounts of the east, uh, but also the rise of the novel. So I'm particularly interested in how the novel comes into being in the 18th and 17th century. We tend to think now of the novel as a sort of central literary form, but in the 18th century it was a very new form, a kind of um, uh, all that the word, word means is novel, it means new. Um, and central, I thought, to the emergence of the novel was this enthusiasm for the Oriental tale. The Arabian Nights are first translated in the first two decades of the 18th century into English. Um, and they're immensely popular. They're serialised in periodicals. You hear them echoing different stories, uh, uh, echo through um, novels of the 18th century. Writers are particularly fascinated by them. Samuel Taylor Coleridge at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, talks about his mesmeric kind of attraction to the Arabian Nights as a book and how he immersed himself in it. Um, and after that, after the first two decades of the 18th century, when we see this translation of the Arabian Nights from French into English, it's a Frenchman who first translates them, um, you see English writers starting to imitate the Arabian Nights um, and tell Eastern tales, fake Eastern tales, as well uh, alongside those travel accounts. So are the same concerns being expressed in this Oriental fiction as in domestic fiction of the time? Um, yes. Well, I suppose, I, th I think so. I, well, what I think happens is that um, that Enlightenment project to talk about a sort of free and rational mind and its play across geographical and temporal spaces as its, as its immense liberty, that, that can be expressed in the Oriental tale. Um, so the Oriental, Oriental tales often involve characters who, for instance, transmigrate or transform. Um, so the Buddhist tradition of 
rebirth is imagined as a kind of narrative device where you can tell stories about people reincarnating in different forms as from animal to human species. There's also of course the attraction, the immense attraction of the oriental fable. Aesop's um, uh, tales are, are translated in numerous forms, his fables in the early 18th century. Um, Gay, John Gay is perhaps the most famous um, translator of them. Afro Ben also has in the late 17th century a selection of Aesop's fables. Aesop is recognised as, a, as a, a sort of oriental informant. This image of the wise um, oriental st storyteller who corrects um, corruption in government, introduces social reform, or trains up a young prince to take his responsibilities seriously. That comes from a long tradition of Oriental stories. The Panchatantra, the Indian tale sequence, is translated in the mid-17th century into Italian and then into English, something called the Fables of Doni, very popular. Um, so this idea of sort of short tales that deliver morals um, and the play of the mind, as I said, across different territories coincides with the enthusiasm for travel writing as well, of course, and collections of, of travel literature. So travel literature obviously is quite popular in the mm. Victorian era as well, which is sort of famous. Yeah. Um, would you say that that lure of the East that you've described in 18th century fiction is, is the same as that oriental pull that you get later? Well, I think Edward Said is right to say that something happens at the end of the 18th, early 19th century. Obviously, historically, what happens is Western Empire uh, starts to really gain a foothold. Um, so, most obviously for, for England, the acquisition of, of India um, in the later 18th century means that the English um, and the British are starting to imagine themselves as territorial governors rather than traders in relationship to wealthy Eastern states, and they're gaining access to that wealth. So I think Victorian 19th century writing does have a less open attitude to the East. It's more inclined to see it as a territory that needs to be controlled and managed. It's more inclined to represent um, native cultures, Hinduism, um, and, 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 and sort of popular Islam as something that's a dangerous force for insurrection that needs to be controlled and managed. So I think you get a shift towards that, what Saeed sees as the Orient as other and away from the Orient as analogue. And you can see why that would happen. If you want to trade with a culture, you need to understand it. If you want to dominate and govern it, it might not be that you need to understand it, you need to contain it and control it and, and vindicate your own um, actions, particularly, I suppose, the kind of defence of Christianity. Uh, and, and attempt to spread Christianity in those in those cultures that that um, European states are now governing in the East. So I think there is a definite shift. Um, that said, the sort of 18th century fascination with the exoticism of the East is, is you can still hear that chiming through some wonderful 19th century texts. There's a there's a beautiful sequence of poems um, by Tom Moore called Lala Rook. Uh, which is a great sort of poetic epic version of the Arabian Nights with multiple tales. Tom Moore's a great friend of Byron. Byron's Oriental Tales from the early 18th century. Uh, his his uh, series of epic, well, series of, of Oriental poems, um, which are full of sort of storm and drang and excitement. Uh, uh, you can see, and Byron himself, of course, is um, travels through Albania and it's very his imagination is absolutely gripped 
by his experiences in the East. Um, so it's not that there aren't writings like that, but I think the, the shift generally is much more towards um, a less open, um, less enthusiastic representation of the East. Um, and Samuel Johnson, of course, was a mm. forefront, uh, at the forefront of this movement in, in some ways. Mm. Um, why should we study him as a writer of Oriental fiction? Okay, so Samuel Johnson publishes this little book. For those of, if anyone knows anything about Samuel Johnson, they probably think of him as a writer of great copiousness. You know, the editor of the dictionary, um, one of the first dictionaries of the English language in the mid 18th century, uh, accounts of the lives of the poets. Um, but this is what he calls his little story book. And it's 49 short chapters. It's a, a lovely, it's a small little book. He publishes it in 1759. Um, and he wrote it at great speed in the evenings of January 1759 um, because his mother was seriously ill and then died and he had to find the costs, had to find something to pay for her funeral. So he did write it as a kind of commercial endeavour. Um, and it's a short tale about a prince called Rasselas uh, from Abyssinia, uh, which is now modern day Ethiopia, who is brought up in the Happy Valley. He's the fourth son of, of an absent king and he starts to long to escape this place where every luxury is given to him but in a way the mind is contained and controlled. Sometimes I think Johnson only chose the word or, or the location of Abyssinia because it contains in it that word abyss and the idea that his mind is enclosed in an abyss and he needs to escape from the happy valley which he finally manages to do. It takes him a long time, takes him months and months of imagining his freedom before he gets away and he, he leaves in the company of his sister, Nakaya, and her maidservant, Pekua, and with a wise sage poet character called Imlac. And they travel to Cairo and Egypt, and there they, Nakaya and Rasselas, brother and sister, set about trying to identify what it is that brings happiness in the world. And what they discover through their encounters with various different people who appear to be happy, and then they discover they aren't, is that happiness is not obtainable in the world that even when you seem happy it's not actually there and that you have to come to terms with disappointment, disillusion, grief, loss. And it, most of the novel, it's only 49 short chapters as I said, consists of little conversations, reported conversations between Rasselas and Nakaya. There's also a wonderful little insect tale about Pekua, um, the maidservant who's abducted by Arabs when they go to visit the pyramids and Nakaya, her mistress, falls into a terrible decline missing her and they finally manage to ransom her back. Now, one of the reasons we might want to read this short fiction now is if you think about the current political world climate and think about the centrality of Egypt um, to the Arab Spring, to debates about what's going on um, in the East. In that novel, Johnson clearly identifies Egypt as, if you like, the centre of Oriental culture. This is where Rasselas and Nakaya go to get their information, if we think about them as little surrogates for ourselves. Um, and they find there a place of kind of great wisdom and diversity, but also it's a space where they come to recognise that we all have a kind of longing to, or an attraction to despotism, an attraction to tyranny. We all want to see our own wishes brought about. So, so and they have to learn to contain and to and curb that despotism and recognise that we can't all have our wishes met. Um, so one way in which the East here is, is functioning is as a kind of parable for the West about the sort of complaint that the East is, consists of, of, 
of people who can only recognise despotism and tyranny, we can still hear that too in our current news reporting um, about Syria, about Egypt, that language of sort of saying that Eastern peoples need to be controlled by tyranny and can't be controlled by, can't be managed by democracy or can't accommodate democracy. Johnson's, I think, throwing all of that on its head and challenging our preconceptions and our, our, and our stupidities and our prejudices about these differences, saying humanity is all the same. We all have unspoken desires and wishes. We manifest them in different ways, and we all need to find ways of governing those desires and wishes. So in that respect, I would say it's a great little parable for our own time, but it also tells you something um, about Enlightenment 18th century understandings of what constitutes the humane um, and what constitutes human desire. Um, in other respects, it's interesting to me, it's a, it's a lovely little story which gives women's voices great power and authority, which I think is very interesting to us. Nikaya has a kind of equivalence with Rasselas. In some ways, it's not unsurprising, but it's pretty conventional that it's Rasselas who goes out and finds out how political government works, and Nakaya is interested in finding out how marriage works and whether you can ever be happy in marriage. I always like the fact, though, that she concludes that you simply can't. <laughs> um, uh, although she says celibacy is pretty miserable too. So, <laughs> um, but also she's a, she's a an equal disputant with her brother. She's a rationalist. She's a thinker. But she's also understood to be the voice of loss and grief, this connection to Pekua. It's also true that the characters who need to be healed from their delusions are partly healed by spending time in mixed company. So there are a number of, of men. There's a mad astronomer who believes that he can control the weather. And this is because he spent too long on his own in a tower. And a way that he's cured is by spending time with Rasselas and with, his, and, and with the women. Um, so being put back into company for Johnson, and Johnson was a man who suffered from depression and clearly found company an important part of, of managing his depressive moments. So there's lots of really wonderful little kind of pockets of experience for you as a reader of, of Rasselas, whilst it's also a quick and enjoyable read, which isn't always true of many of the Oriental tale sequences I've read, which can be very, very long and have wonderful little delightful inset stories, but don't have the kind of tightness and order and playfulness that you find in Johnson's little, as he called it, his little storybook. <laughs>